Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Sechid Yilmaz. Today, our guest is Yit Akin, an assistant professor of history at Tulane University. Yit, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to revisit a topic that we've talked about before, which is the World War I in the Ottoman Empire. But we're going to be approaching it from a little different perspective than many historians in the past have done, because we're really going to focus on the lived experience of Ottoman subjects during the war on the home front. So we'll talk about soldiers, but we're also going to talk about families. We're going to talk about women. We're going to talk about internally displaced people. The song that you guys heard at the beginning of the podcast is a song called Heyon Beshli. Yet, can you explain why you chose this song to uh, introduce the topic? Um, Heyon Beshli explains um, the greatest part of the miseries that the Ottoman uh, people suffer from uh, during World War I. Um, hey, Ombeşli, in that lyrics, uh, refers to young soldiers, sons uh, or brothers or, or who are 16, 17 years old uh, in the year 1917. Um, they were born uh, in the Rumi year of 18, um, 13, 18, 13, 15, and they were sent to the army at very young ages. Hayombeşli really captures that feeling, that feeling of their families, probably, most probably female members of their families. So this is why I picked that song uh, to talk about, to start our discussion today. Yeah, and, and for maybe our listeners in the West who are very familiar with war songs, war songs about bravery and, and these types of themes, what we find actually in folk music of Anatolia in particular, or in, or in the Arab world as well, is that songs associated with World War I are actually about loss, and they, they express this... Um, heartbreak felt by families who may be losing their sons or saying goodbye for the last time, for example, or mm-hmm. missing them. In a previous podcast with Vedika Kant about uh, Indian soldiers so, in mm-hmm. the Ottoman Empire, we actually touched on this because, you know, in India they also have these these types of songs. So it's not an exclusively Ottoman experience, but really exactly. this is one window onto the social history of World War One, maybe mm-hmm. even a global perspective. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So in approaching this issue of, of the home front during the war in the Ottoman Empire, we're going to hit on four major themes. Mobilization, or Sefer Berlik, which is the levying of troops. Uh, provisioning. And then we're going to talk about the experience of women, and we're going to talk about the experience of internally displaced people or deported people in the case of Armenians and Armenian genocide. So we're going to hit on these four points. Why don't we start off by talking about that very important moment of mobilization? Sefer Berlik actually is probably the catchword that everybody in this geography, in this part of the world would understand. In Arabic, um, into uh, Syrian colloquially, it, it was transferred like a, a feminine. Uh, in Anatolia, it means uh, not necessarily the Sefer Berlik, not only the mobilization, but people, uh, when people talk about Sefer Berlik, they mean the war and the disasters of the war. To give a very good example, there's a very famous musical with Feyruz, the most important mm-hmm. figure in Lebanese music, and it's called Sefer, Sefer Berlik. Exactly. Uh, but as I said, I mean, in time, the meaning of Sefer Berlik um, has been transformed, and into the memories of the people, it was um, etched like the disaster, like disastrous war and wartime experience. In the Ottoman ca- context, Sefer Berlik, of course, means, first and foremost, um, recruitment of people, recruitment of troops. And Surprisingly, Ottoman Empire, and surprisingly to its allies and enemies, um, Ottoman Empire was quite successful in mobilizing um, about 2, 2.9 million troops over the course of four years. So 
at the highest time at the um, highest time of the Ottoman army, it was probably about eight hundred fifty thousand soldiers. So, and all in all, two point nine million soldiers is an enormous number for an empire of twenty million. So far, we knew these numbers, but we actually didn't know uh, what kind of impacts this enormous comprehensive mobilization had on uh, had on the Ottoman people or Ottoman lands. So in my dissertation, in my works, um, I wanted to understand this aspect of the Ottoman home front, the Ottoman war experience. Mobilization of those soldiers meant for their families the um, disappearance of the working hands, the uh, gradual exodus of young men uh, from the village and communal life, because we have to remember 90% of the Ottoman people at the time were, were peasants. They live in the countryside. And um, in the years, for example, in 1917, 1918, uh, both foreign and um, Ottoman observers talk about villages whose entire male population disappeared, were taken into army or deserted, um, just ran into the mountains. So Seferberlik, in that sense, means first and foremost uh, the recruitment of young, young men uh, in Ottoman lands. But it's actually associated with this destructive impact of the recruitment and probably one of the things we're going to talk about later is is famine of course people will cite you know the the locust plague as a source of famine or maybe redirection of grain routes or of course blockades but also the loss of labor because male labor is being redirected towards fighting instead of Mm -hmm. agricultural uh, endeavors we can understand how this also contributed to the starvation that started to occur in that exactly Empire. exactly this is one of the most important reasons of the um, Syrian famine and hunger and shortages in other parts of the Ottoman land uh, because it not only means uh, the loss of labor which was actually very important because this was still a primitive agricultural economy and it very much uh, depends on the uh, labor of the animals which were also, we'll talk about this, which ah. were also requisitioning, requisition from the people, and also the labor of, labor of men and women. Um, and disappearance of men meant a disaster for the agricultural economy, meant um, a, a serious, brought about a serious shortages and, and, and hunger. On top of that, you don't only, as a state, you don't only lose these people or economy, you don't only lose these people, labor of these people, mm-hmm. you also have, have to, to feed, feed them. them. Um, and feeding um, a million or hundreds of thousands of soldiers is not an easy task for the Ottomans. And I think that's going to bring us into our second topic in this podcast, which is, of course, uh, provisioning. But before we do so, could you give me a sense of, uh, you, you mentioned 2.9 million soldiers, soldiers. Uh, were recruited by the Ottomans during the war. Approximately how many of them at least survived after the war to return mm-hmm. to their homes? I mean, how many... The numbers are actually interesting and quite um, quite shocking. Um, when we talk about this with our um, Europeanists and Americans friends, um, they actually get very much surprised. Um, during the, over the course of the war, uh, about seven hundred fifty thousand soldiers died, and the majority of these, more than half actually, about sixty percent, sixty five percent of them died um, because of infectious diseases, not because of the benefit uh, wounds. Um, or other war-related problems, they died because of the diseases, infectious diseases. Um, by the end of the war, another interesting number is there were about 300,000 people who got back to their villages or hometowns 
um, seriously wounded, which means they cannot uh, mm-hmm. function anymore as normal people. They cannot work in the field. They cannot continue their lives as normal people. I can assure you, you cannot find a single sentence about these people in the literature, in the secondary literature. This is a very much ignored, very much omitted subject. From yeah, it's very common to find reference to deaths, mm-hmm. you know, as an, as a, as, but it's harder to quantify the impact on people who are debilitated in some way uh, by fighting in the war, which of course is a huge number, as you said. Mm-hmm. So another problem is, um, another interesting number is the uh, POWs, prisons of wars. Um, there were about 150,000 soldiers. Yücel Yanık does, a uh, recent study, which is also published as a as a book very recently, talks about the uh, Ottoman POWs experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, again, my friend Mehmet Beşikçi's recent work published by Brill um, in 2012 um, is a very good study of the Ottoman manpower mobilization during the war. They talk about these numbers in detail. And the Red Crescent archives are really a great way of looking at that, the mm-hmm. sort of a, a newer archive that's been opened up. They were tracking the, you know... Locations of prisoners of war, who ended up as far afield as, I guess, Myanmar and places in Southeast Asia. Exactly, exactly. Um, Red Crescent Archives is, you know, as you said, it's very, um, for now, it's very underexplored uh, source, which would, we believe, uh, brought about very interesting findings, very interesting sources. Here, as I was going through your dissertation, a provisioning chapter not the chapter itself, but the title sounded the most boring one. Probably because of my um, disinterest in political economy. But when I get into the chapter, it's actually the ways in which one should delve into the issue. I mean, you can't miss <laughs> the problems of provisioning to be able to understand everyday life experiences of ordinary people and their survival. So this is one part of my question. The other part of the question, can you tell us a little bit about the sources to be able to capture the problems of provisioning of everyday mm-hmm. life? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thanks for the compliment about the title <laughs> of the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Could you, well, what's provisioning? Provisioning <laughs> for people who don't That's know it is. Um, uh, provisioning actually is, uh, in Ottoman terms, it, it was translated as iashe, um, uh, feeding and providing the city, yeah. not only the army, but also the urban population. Iashe um, coming folks. from the root meaning to make people live. You make know? people so literally live. Literally exactly. making feeding and everything that goes with it. Exactly. Uh, providing them whatever they need to, to survive, to live. Uh, as other uh, belligerent states, belligerent governments, Ottoman Empire, Ottoman state officials um, recognized from the very beginning of the war, recognized um, feeding such a huge army and urban populations, which they considered extremely important, especially the population of the capital city, Istanbul, uh, as an utmost problem, the, uh, the most immediate problem to be answered. It wasn't, you know, we talk about the recruitment of uh, hundreds of thousands of men and the loss of labor. Um, this is just one aspect of the Ottoman home front experience. It's an important aspect because it also has a psychological dimension. It's not only uh, not only material loss, but also psychological loss, uh, which we didn't couldn't understand so far very well. Uh, but also, remember, this is an empire with a very primitive 
and inefficient transportation network. Most of the soldiers, um, unless they were sent to to really exceptional fronts, they had to walk. They had to walk to the front, and sometimes this walking takes months. Um, sometimes they had to walk, you know, 800 kilometers, something like that. Um, and at the same time, they used animals. To be able to transport such a huge army, they, of course, the Ottomans used the uh, railroad networks and etc. Uh, but for the most part, this is an empire where the transportation has done, um, has been done with animals. So from the first day of the war, from first day of the mobilization, this is August 2nd, 1914, to the very last day, Ottoman state officials continuously requisitioned animals from people, uh, from Ottoman peasants. And these are not only, uh, not only horses or this kind of, you know, quote-unquote, more valuable animals uh, for transportation, all kind of animals. Pack animals. Pack fancy. animals. All kin you know, even the weakest donkeys were requisitioned in the villages. In some villages, there were not even one pack animal uh, which was extremely important for the, for the uh, for agriculture. Sure. So, uh, you know, when talk about this boring subject of provisioning, we have to, uh, to we have to pay attention to this important aspect. Yeah, actually, uh, a friend of mine who researches uh, Lebanon during the First World War, Graham Pitts, he told me some very interesting information he found of uh, sort of landholders, uh, despite the conditions of the war. Um, trying to acquire machinery to replace, I guess, animals. absent mm -hmm. peasants and, and animals. Do you have a sense of how many animals were uh, requisitioned during the war? It's really difficult to come by numbers, um, with numbers. Um, but I can easily say um, the entire animal stock of the empire, by the end of the war, by 1918, um, the entire animal stock was exhausted. There were constant complaints from the commanders in the fields, constant complaints from local officials discussing these subjects. At least leave a couple animals to continue life in this in this village. Because people, you know, if you leave two, you know, a pair of oxen, um, they can use them uh, interchangeably. Uh, first dealing with, you know, first, first uh, plowing one field, then other field. They do this kind of things. But um, even in many, many villages, not even one pair of oxen was left. Wow. They either died again because of the infectious diseases or requisitioning by the army. And requisitioning um, was actually not limited to animals. Especially in the second half of the war, uh, the, uh, the state officials, the government, uh, realized that the only way to feed such a huge army is to requisition the grain that people had. Absolutely. And grain is one of the major issues in the First World War. Um, not just within the Ottoman Empire, but of course we have these blockades. Mm -hmm. So why don't you talk about the uh, grain economy during this period and, and sort of the problem of feeding people? Mostly because of the this primitive and inefficient transportation network that we talk about. Um, the Ottomans, uh, the, especially the capital cities, grain was coming from uh, from Odessa, from Marseille, even from New York, uh, and from different parts of the world. Um, the easiest way, for example, to come, uh, to travel from Beirut to Istanbul, as you know, uh, was, was ships, you know, to take ships. And that, you know, nobody prefers 
to come to Anatolia. Or, you know, easiest way to reach to Trabzon, to Samsun, again by ship. But during the war, uh, the Antan powers, especially the British, uh, as a strategy, aim to blockade those straits, straits of Gallipoli, straits of Istanbul, and also um, Russian navy was in the, in the North Sea. So, and the Syrian coast was blockaded too. So there was, it was practically impossible to send grain or to acquire grain from those parts of the empire. The uh, communication, the transportation um, between different parts of the empire was cut. So, and this was one of the significant, most significant problems for the Ottomans. They had to rely now on the bread ba- bread baskets of the of the empire, like uh, the like the province of Konya, for example, exactly. like the province of Ankara. Uh, but it was again very difficult. Uh, this is also, this is one reason to requisition so many animals. It was the only way to send grain to other parts of the other parts of the empire. So, Yid, can you tell us a little bit about how requisition? had an impact on everyday life in the countryside, especially where we're talking about 90% of the Ottoman population were peasants and clearly living in the countryside. So in, in that aspect, what can you tell us about what was going on? Mm-hmm. That aspect is actually the most impre- interesting uh, part of this discussion, discussion of provisioning. Uh, because... In my works, I try to understand the wartime regime of the Ottoman Empire during World War One, but also I try to understand um, how ordinary people, how people on the field, how people who were left in the villages, try to cope with cope with these problems, wrestle with these problems. The expansion of the state uh, was not unique to Ottomans during the war. All belligerent states expanded, quote uh, unquote, during the war, and Ottomans realized that um, the only way to fight such a massive war on several fronts uh, was uh, to intervene into distant corners of the empire, to extract men, first of all, men, uh, to, uh, to, to fill the ranks, um, and to extract animals and graze and other possessions to feed the urban centers and to feed the army. Um, and this expansion of the state which wasn't seen in previous conflicts, by the way, in earlier conflicts. This was quite new, which makes World War I a unique experience for the Ottomans. Uh, during World War I, the empire experienced the most comprehensive mobilization of men and resources in its entire history. And the expansion of the state brought about new interactions, opened about new fields, new domains of interaction between the people and the state officials. Sometimes these state officials were the gendarme officers. Um, sometimes they were the police forces. Sometimes they were the requisitioning officials who came visited reg- uh, villages regularly. And as you can easily expect, these interactions are not all were not always peaceful. People from Anatolia, from Arab lands, from all over the empire, um, constantly fought over their resources, tried to hide them from the state officials, tried to hide their, um, just like they tried to hus- uh, hide their husbands and sons and other you know, family members um, or animals. Uh, they tried to resist uh, states um, ever increasing, uh, ever uh, increasingly 
uh, intervening powers, intervening um, attempts. And you can see this maybe perhaps in the historical memory of the period we were talking before about just how much the war experience weighs heavily on the memory of the Ottoman Empire in mm-hmm. the Arab provinces, for example. Uh, we had a previous podcast with Zachary Foster about the memory of World War One and the changing images of the, the changing image of the Ottomans, and of course in uh, Syria, for example, the Ottoman Empire is synonymous with Jamal Pasha. Mm-hmm. The Ottoman Empire is uh, Jamal Pasha. Is remembered as Jamal Pasha. Yeah, Jamal Pasha Safa. I mean, the butcher. Yeah. Jamal Pasha, the butcher. Yeah. And so, if we, you know, buy the argument, in, for example, a work like Hassan Kaila's uh, Arabs and Young Turks about the successful um, incorporation of, you know, mm-hmm. wider ranks of Arab population for the first time within to the Ottoman community, we can see how this is undone by what goes on in the war. More years, exactly. I mean, this is, um, especially when it comes to Arab provinces, these four years, four years of war, were extremely important in determining the the fate of the, or the approach of the uh, Arab population of the empire uh, towards the center. Um, And actually, I could easily say these four years uh, were much more formative than the uh, the previous years in shaping the relations. Uh, People... Uh, because of the famine, because of uh, the wartime, general wartime policies, policies of requisition, policies, policies of recruitment, um, and the increasing pressure of the state. People, not only in Arab provinces, also in Anatolia, remember those years as, as horrible years, as sure. the years of Sefer Berlik, um, meaning as the years of um, horror and, and trauma and, and misery. And a good example uh, of this would be the diary recently published uh, by Salim Tamari, which he entitled Year of the Locust. It's a diary from World War I, but this title of Year of the Locust refers to the effect of locusts on crops exacerbating a famine that was really already in the works. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, this kind of um, environmental, I mean, um, the empire was kind of unlucky at the same time. Um, Locust probably was not the major reason of the famine. there sure. were several other reasons, you know, like the blockade, like the wartime requisitioning policies of the empire, the loss of uh, labor forces, loss of animals. They all contributed to the famine, to famine conditions. But locust came at the same time. And not only actually to, to Arab lands, to Lebanon, but also to several parts of Anatolia. Sure. You know, from Konya. almost every single province, you receive... Uh, uh, reports local reports written by local officials talking about the disaster that locusts caused um, during the war, and also drought, and also um, very very uh, severe winters in several parts of Anatolia. Uh, they all contributed to uh, to the emergence of these you know, horrible conditions. And and this is of course this is always one of the major debates in environmental history: are famines caused by people? Are famines caused by nature? Our famines caused by "quote unquote" modernity, or our famines caused by lack of modernity. In the case of, you know, do transportation networks send grain away from people who need it, or send it to them? These are major issues that are going to be uh, fleshed out as the field of environmental history of the Ottoman Empire during World War One becomes more developed. And so now we're going to be moving into a, a further discussion of the social aspects with a talk about the impact of the war on women and families but before we do we want to let you guys hear the rest of that folk song we mentioned at the beginning hey on bashley referring to the experience of uh, safar berlik hey on bashley on bashley 
Tokat yollar taşlı Hey on beşli, on beşli Tokat yollar taşlı On beşliler geliyor Yarimin gözü yaşlı Aslan yarim kız senin adın her diye Ben dolandım sende dolan gel beriye Fistan aldım endazesi on yediye This is a very touching song and um and it 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 makes me ask this question about where we kept talking about recursion and um it it was applied to many aspects of human condition and natural environment but it seems like only women remained and they actually became the um main actors in the home front so can you tell us a little bit about their experience and you you mentioned everyday encounters with state uh, officials and and different kinds of conversations happening it sounds like war in war actually mm-hmm. so can you tell us a little bit what happened to women and how women transformed experience. yeah their their experience transformed mm-hmm. in this context You know there's a significant liter- literature um in European languages on women's experiences uh during World War 1. Um in Germany for example there's a growing uh, actually already very developed literature in France so in in Great Britain. In Ottoman Empire we have so far we had couple studies by one by uh, Yavuz Selim Karakışla uh Nikol Fanos uh articles were also important. Um Finally we have a real interest in women's experiences and this is a very much um very much deserved interest uh because women were the major actors of the Ottoman home front um since all uh, or the most of the young men were uh, taken into army uh, war made women the focal point of especially the rural life did they know that Were they aware they of? were very much aware of that. Um this is not to say they occupied the uh the ruling positions or administrative positions in the villages. You know, still the older members of the village community um occupied these those roles, you know, the muhtars or you know, ihtiyar heads are were always older men. But women were the most active and most um I would say important actors of the home front because they did almost everything to survive uh, to continue life in the rural communities um they they plowed the fields um they took care of uh, the children they took care of the animals if there were any uh and they did all these on top of the um household works they which they quote and god normally had to deal with and the process the process I talk about uh briefly the expansion of the state 
brought women, these women, especially in the countryside, but also in urban centers too, uh, but especially in the countryside, brought these women into a very frequent and usually unpeaceful uh, encounter with the state officials. And this encounter is sometimes with the gendarme officers, sometimes with the police officers, sometimes with the requisitioning officers, sometimes uh, with the state authorities. They constantly telegrammed and petitioned, um, even to the highest levels of the state authorities. They, they bombarded, we can talk about this literally, bombarded a state uh, department, state officials, um, local and imperial, at imperial levels local, provincial, and imperial levels, uh, with their telegrams, with their petitions, complaining about the wartime policies of the Ottoman state, complaining about the miseries they suffered because of these policies, complaining, um, for example, about the lack of animals, lack of seed, uh, seed grain, lack of farm um, equipment, etc. And are these uh, petitions and telegrams, they're... they're available at the Ottoman archives for researchers to, to look at, right? Yeah, I found them in the Ottoman archives, yeah. Um, it's amazing then that uh, women, and you know, a group that maybe sometimes is considered to not have a voice within the archival record is actually the group that is participating in giving voice to the suffering of the entire Ottoman Empire through their uh, communication with the central government. Exactly. And... Um, what is also important in, the, in those telegrams and petitions and other forms of uh, communication with the state officials is the language they used. Um, I, in a recent article, I, I paid uh, attention to that language. They, um, there is very little, uh, I would say, begging or demand, uh, begging from the state officials. Mm -hmm. They usually, almost always, saw the state support, the, uh, state support um, as a right they earned Absolutely. by their sons and husbands and uh, brothers uh, military service. This is also a very unique, very, very important development during the war. We see the, that, the, the, that the military service of their, of their relatives entitled these women, they, they, at least they perceived they are entitled to state, um, state aid uh, or state support. And in that regard, I, d I detect a little bit of that as well in the petitions that people write sort of in the last years before the war following the constitutional reform that re whereas during the Hamidian period, people would, it's almost kind of like begging, as you said, when they write to the, the government, you see more like demanding uh, certain services as rights, whether in the field of education or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is a there is a changing uh, relationship between the state and and its subjects uh, since at least the Meshrutiyet years, since, mm -hmm. since at least the beginning of or, or first decade of the twentieth century. Um, but during the war and because of the war, actually because of the war, um, we see the emergence of a new language. We see the emergence of a new rhetoric, rhetoric mm -hmm. almost always used by women. They signed the petitions as um, wife of such and such, um, giving the name of the soldier and sometimes in some specific, uh, specific troops and, or, you know, mother of such and such. And they constantly use that rhetoric in their petitions. Um, we are mothers and wives of brave Ottoman soldiers who are dying to protect the, uh, to protect the religion and the nation from the enemies. Well, they are um, shielding their chests uh, from the bullets Mm -hmm. of the enemy but we are starving here mm -hmm. so uh, where are you they are asking um, they, they demand it from the state from the state officials and this is the highest ranks of the state officials by the way um, 
that they uh, they send their soldiers to the army, and in exchange they expect something from the state. At least they expect not to starve in their villages. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- these letters are very moving. I found a letter in the forestry ministry. I was researching about forestry, which is maybe not the most uh, emotionally evocative topic, but then I found this letter from a mother who was looking for her son who had who was a forestry officer and then was recruited in the war. And in this particular letter, we've posted it in our blog. That's why I'm mentioning it for our listeners. It turns out that on his way back from the front on a Vapur, on a, on a boat to Kadakoy, the boat had a crash and it sunk and he died. Hmm. So, I mean, it's amazing just how much uh, human experience is contained in these records that maybe previous scholars have, have seen it too, but have uh, ignored, I think. Yes, this is this is a difference in um, difference in approach to the war. Uh, war so far, except for some important studies, war so far, especially when it comes to Ottoman studies, was seen as a domain of um, politicians or mm-hmm. high-ranking military men. Uh, in my works, I try to approach the war um, as a common as an experience shared by all members of the Ottoman society, and this is actually true. You know all. By the end of the war, you cannot find um, a single neighborhood or a village which wasn't touched by the war, which sure. wasn't formed by the war and the dis- disasters of the war uh, in, a, in a radical way. Um, maybe you can find a couple families who were not really affected by the war, but the majority of the Ottomans um, went through this experience. And for people, for Ottomans who lived in those years, this was the most formative experience. War was the most formative experience. Yit, um, can you tell us a little bit about the um, unpeaceful encounters, especially women, uh, during the war with state office officers and other actors that we that are defined or not defined yet, and uh, what kind of reactions that the state, quote unquote, gave to? The violence in violence, in that sense, can you tell us a little bit? Actually, we don't know much about these these uh, these encounters, or at least this aspect of these encounters. We know, of course, very well that Armenian women um, during the uh, deportation marches uh, suffered from enormous uh, violence, uh, both from the employees of the state and also from other, you know, from the tribes and other people, um, other people who were present at, around. But for other women, these encounters with state officials was usually not very peaceful. Uh, they were beaten uh, by state officials to uh, who were demanding their grain. Um, they were beaten by other men who were left uh, in in their villages. Uh, and maybe know, maybe a lot of kidnapping. Kidnapping, yes. right? Yeah, exactly. And this is. Maybe we can separate this this question into two. Um, the war conditions, first of all, war conditions forced many women, um, probably tens of thousands of women, into prostitution. Prostitution, as you know very well, uh, prostitution grew rapidly um, in urban and urban centers and 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 countryside during the war and the, uh, the miseries, the shortages, and several other and pressure from the state officials. And this is a usually disregarded aspect of prostitution, growing this rapidly growing prostitution during the war. Um, pressure from the state officials was an important reason uh, to push these women into prostitution. Uh, women usually, women who wanted to hide their husbands, deserted the husbands, 
desertion, desertion was a common problem for the Ottoman army, by the way. Um, or women who were you know, demanding their uh, salaries, monthly salaries from the state. They were sometimes raped by the state officials. They were sometimes um, attacked and beaten and assaulted uh, by, by other men on the home front. We know this. You know, p- women usually do not talk about this. Um, but we know this from the, uh, from the measures that the state took. Uh, in 1915, for example, uh, this issue became so alarming that the state passed a regulation. Assault against soldiers' families would be punished by capital punishment. So this is so severe. I mean, capital punishment, hanging. Um, mm. Those who assaulted soldiers' families, soldiers' wives and children, would be punished by capital punishment, with capital punishment. So this shows, I guess, you know, this gives a clear idea how serious yeah. the problem became uh, for, the, for the state authorities. Can we say that um, at least one male member of each family was recruited for the war, which basically makes the whole society, in a way, mm-hmm. soldier Family, exactly. soldiers, family, soldiers, mm-hmm. mothers, and soldiers' wives. in a total war. So this basically, this regulation, this legislation that was passed, was also a total legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, taking care of the the demands of as a response became a response probably to the petitions mm-hmm. that were sent. Actually, you know, from the, the countryside. At, at that point, maybe I can go back. You know very briefly to the recruitment, uh, <clears throat> the issue of recruitment. Um, usually we talk about, when we talk about Sefer Berlik, when we talk about mobilization, recruitment of men, mm-hmm. we usually forget uh, to talk about the extremely important development that took place in uh, May 1914. And this is a new law of re- uh, military service. Um, Ottoman um, state, mostly as a reaction to the defeat in the Balkan Wars, uh, passed and uh, completely new and in many ways, radical uh, mi- law of military service. And Ottoman Empire entered this entered the war, uh, World War One, with this new uh, military service law, which the importance of this law comes from um, the expansion of the military service to many groups of the Ottoman society, which were excluded, which had been excluded from the military service so far. Absolutely. And one of the, arguably the most important of these groups now taken into the military service into the into the scope of the military service were were the muinsis families um muinsis means usually families who had only one breadwinner or depended on salary or you know earnings of the one uh, breadwinner mm-hmm. those who were breadwinners were not taken hadn't been taken into the army bef- previously and this new law canceled this policy and required that all muinsis all sole breadwinners should also serve in the army. Well, it may seem not so important, but under the conditions of war, this became quite catastrophic uh, for, for arguably millions of families who depended on the earnings of only one sole breadwinner. And in exchange of the labor of uh, this sole breadwinner, the state issued 30 krush a month separation allowance to members of the family. You see one more dimension of interaction. Um, So, and these families, according to my observations, these families became the most active 
and especially the female members, women of these families became most active members of the most active subjects of the uh, Ottoman Home Front. So can we also bring up, up a new angle about the conditions that were brought to Home Front is that the these conditions did not really cross cut equally each group in 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 the society mm-hmm. when we think about Armenian experience when we think about Greek experience especially in terms of Greek experience um Dido Sotrius memoir mm-hmm. actually Bandan Selam Anadolia is a, gives a very interesting example of one soldier who started to serve in the Ottoman army in the first part of the in during the World War 1 and in the second part which is independence war of independence became a greek soldier in the same geography mm-hmm. so it's a really interesting um uh, example of how um people's engagement to war according to their belonging to particular ethnic community also shaped their experiences the total war experience and um community's mutual uh interaction mm-hmm. so can you Tell us a little bit about this as in terms of the population and displaced groups, the refugee issue. Can you give us um, a new, another perspective from that angle of um, people who are mobilized and in different ways in, in this context? Famous Russian historian Peter Gatrell um, has a fascinating book about the Russian refugees during World War One. The, the title of the book is uh, "The Whole Empire Walking." Um, well, Ottoman Empire was kind of a empire walking during the war, um, because as you know, there were many groups who were displaced uh, from their uh, localities and deported to other uh, parts of the empire. Armenians, we know relatively more about Armenians. And their horrible experiences during the war, um, during their deportation marches, hundreds of thousands of them killed, um, and their properties were taken. Uh, they what they experienced is completely unique. is uh, is not similar to other to what other ethno-religious groups experienced during the war. But there were also um, similar experiences that surrounded the experiences of uh, the Armenians. The Greek deportation of Greeks, for example, from the Uh, from the coasts to inland was also a, a very tragic experience. Unfortunately, we don't know uh, very much about those experiences. A similar experience, not of course, not comparable to the, to what like, Armenians experience. I have no intention to compare that. It's a very unique, very... Um, another important experience, which is, which is usually disregarded so far, is the, the experience of the refugees from the eastern provinces, who had to escape from the Russian invasion of those provinces. Russians, as you know, by the mid of 1916, was occupying pretty much of um, uh, eastern Anatolia, including Erzurum and Erzincan, those major uh, cities. And uh, more than a million of usually Muslim, Muslim refugees had to migrate to central Anatolian cities or to the south which makes the flow the flood of these refugees into those lands made things extremely complicated for the uh, for sure. people who were working uh, for state officials in those provinces and of course the refugee experience is equally horrible uh, 
easily hundreds of thousands of them died because of infectious diseases, because of explosion, uh, because of other horrible conditions on the road. Um, constant movement of people for for a variety of reasons, constant movement of people from one locality to other uh, was an important characteristic of the Ottoman home front. Um, as I said, once again, not all these movements comparable. You know, what experience, Armenia's experience was quite unique and, uh, and catastrophic. Um, but when we talk about the Ottoman home front experiences, we have to remember this, especially when they coupled with the um, demographic engineering projects of the unionists to shape uh, the structure of the society in a radical way, to reshape the structure of the society in a radical way. If, when this overlapped with these horrible conditions, uh, made the Ottoman home front experience um, even more catastrophic than other home front experiences. So you know, having having discussed all these very important aspects of World War One and um, home front experience, thinking about Sefer Berlik, thinking about provisioning, thinking about women's experience and refugees, um, and the expansion of the state. From that angle, when we look at from from home front to Istanbul to be able to understand the the paradoxes and transformation in the state practice. What can we say about the transformation of the state itself in this context? Um, this is a really interesting question, and I've been thinking about this for, for a while. Um, the transformation of the state practices during the war and after the war, um, to say the least, uh, later governments, early republican regimes and uh, post-war governments, learned a lot from their experiences during World War One, And many of these practices, many of the practices that was brought about by the expansion of the state, that was um, generated, let's say, uh, by the expansion of the state, remained in place. Uh, they didn't go back to uh, pre-war uh, conditions, pre-war positions. Um, state remained more or less expanded. And this is also the same thing that happened in Russia. Uh, many of the state practices were left in place. And uh, the War of Independence, for example, which is um, glorified in the official historiography, but equally understudied subject of uh, late Ottoman, early Republican Turkish history, from that perspective, from social and cultural history perspective. And one of my hypotheses is that the, uh, the nationalists in Ankara learned a lot, many of them were soldiers, of course, learned a lot from their experiences during the war during World War One, And they, this time, they implemented these policies in a much better way, in a much more, of course, the size of the war was much smaller. Um, but from, for the state practice, we learned several things. We can make at least several observations. First of all, so far, so far we have focused on these three leaders um, of the uh, unionist regime, Jamal Pasha, Enver Pasha, and Talat Pasha. Okay, of course they were very important. I mean, Jamal Pasha symbolizes the, the horror of the war for the Arab provinces as we, as we speak. Um, or Talat Pasha, who engineered the entire Armenian genocide by himself and, of course, supported by other unionist, leading unionist figures. And Enver Pasha, for example, of course, the commander-in-chief um, of the Ottoman army. They were important. But when it comes to the policies, uh, we can easily observe that Ottoman 
state implemented so many conflicting and so many inefficient policies at the same time. And which actually, in the long run, undermined the entire mobilization effort. The second observation could be made about the, uh, about the um, harmony between the imperial center and the provinces. Um, if you look, when we look at into the details of these policies, we see that many um, local officials, um, I wouldn't say easily resisted, but they revised policies dictated from the imperial center. And we see a, a, sometimes a significant discord between the imperial policies and the local implementations. Um, because the local officials were the ones who were in contact with lo local Ottoman people and who observed those local conditions, they revised sometimes these policies, sometimes in favor of people, and uh, sometimes what they revised actually deteriorated conditions um, even more. Um, but it's really difficult to talk about one harmonious policy uh, which was flowing from the center, imperial center, to the provinces and uh, implemented everywhere uh, with the same rigor and with the same precision. Mm. Uh, I guess when we talk about the Ottoman war experience, we have to keep this in mind uh, all the time. And maybe perhaps the war really exposed a lot of the instabilities or inconsistencies and conflicts that already existed within the Ottoman government. And in this extreme exactly. time, it had an extreme impact. Exactly. So sort of to bring it, to finish up with a question that speaks to really the oldest, longest standing scholarship on World War I, which is the, the more political in nature, one of the burning questions has always been, should the Ottomans have ended the war? Did they have to enter the war? Why did they choose which side they chose? You know, most recently, Mustafa Aksakal has done an excellent job of treating this question. So if we're looking at the, the social impact of the war, we've mentioned inconsistent policies, but to some extent was the experience of the Ottoman Empire an inevitable consequence of World War I, no matter which side they joined with? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, as you mentioned, my friend and colleague Mustafa Aksakal, um, in his book published in 2008 by Cambridge University Press, um, Adam's war, Adam's road to the war. Um, he clearly showed that Adam's were actually played actually very cleverly, um, played the sides, fighting uh, parties against each other um, to find most suitable conditions for themselves. Um, they were not blindfolded. They were not stupid in that sense. You know, they um, they knew that the war was quite inevitable for them. Your question is uh, quite interesting. Um, I honestly believe, no matter what side, either on the Entente side or you know the, on, the, on the side of Germany, um, Ottoman Empire did not have the infrastructure, not only the material infrastructure, but you know human power or agriculture and everything, did not have the power to 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 endure uh, such an experience, such a horrible experience. Um, of course, being on the side of uh, of Germany didn't help. Uh, didn't help. Uh, you know, made the conditions much worse. But even on the side of the uh, Great Britain and France and the Entente, um, the end of the Ottoman Empire would have come probably by not maybe not in 1918, but certainly in 1920s. Yeah, it's not necessary for us to speculate too much, but just alone the case of Russia, which of course undergoes a revolution. Mm -hmm. 
uh, they're on the they were on the winning side of the war, although they also mm-hmm, it's another mm-hmm. case of a country that suffered horribly and had similar infrastructure problems, perhaps. Um, it really speaks to the why they called it a world war in the first place. I mean, mm-hmm. whether you were in Senegal or India or who knows, you were going to be touched by exactly this and thing in that a was dramatic happening. way, you know. Um, by answering this, you know, to answer your political question, you know, what I had in mind is um, the exhaustion of the human capital, uh, the exhaustion of the human capital, and the um, widening gap between various po- ethno-religious groups of the empire. Um, I actually, I honestly couldn't see a way to keep, after all horrible experiences. I don't see a way to keep all these people together um, in in an effective way. And so I guess in this regard, what we sometimes talk about is a civil war that occurs after the end of the war and after the fall of the Ottoman Empire with the nationalists fighting uh, Greek armies and allied armies on one side, um, Russian and Armenian armies on another side, fighting the French uh, in the south. I mean, in some narratives, this seems to be an inevitable escalation of increasing uh, ethnic and, and national tensions. On the other hand, the conditions of the war are what really creates the, the opportunity for such a total all-out civil war, I guess, that results in almost the complete removal of the Christian population of Anatolia. Mm-hmm. The war creates that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Those you know, conditions. This is, yeah, war... It was war that created these conditions. And uh, if you look at in the year of 1919, that's a very important year for the Ottoman history, if you look at 1919 closely, we see that the, uh, this discord all over Anatolia very clearly. Ryan Gingers, for example, wrote mm-hmm. in his Sorrowful Shores, um, showed very clearly that not only uh, the discord between the, or you know, the discontent between the uh, Ottoman Greeks and and the Muslims, but also uh, between various Muslim groups. Um, this is, sure. I would say, a natural outcome of the war, of, the, of these long war years. And I guess that point really speaks to the importance of studying World War I more closely from a social history perspective. You know, this is very polarized historiography. Greek historians, Armenian historians, Turkish historians, Arab historians, they don't agree, needless to say, on the narrative of, of what happened within the more conventional nationalist narratives. However, I think your work is one work that tries to deal with it in a way that is more inclusive and more realistically portrays the total experience of World War I within this geography of the world. Well, yet that's all the time we're going to have for today's episode. We appreciate you uh, coming to the conversation today and, and sharing your research with us. Uh, thanks so much, Chris. Thanks also so much for preparing these wonderful uh, podcasts. Well, uh, you may realize or not realize that yet, but my you know students all over the world like these to listen. Well, we're, <laughs> we're of course very glad to hear that. It's it's just so much fun for me to even be able to sit down and talk with historians about their research. But I appreciate that others are using it as well. I want to thank you too, Sacho, for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Chris. For those who are listening and want to find out more about this topic, we have a select bibliography on our website where you can find some of the works we referred to in this podcast and also other useful background reading reading on the World War I period. We have some pictures up there that show the more social history aspect of the war. And we have a space where you can leave your comments and questions in our Facebook group. That's all for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Thank you for listening, and until next time, take care.
Thank you. 